0: Amen. Well, um, gladness, it's the last of our series. Nine weeks we've been in this series, and we've talked about all sorts of different emotions. we talked about mostly emotions that are difficult, like envy and jealousy and contempt and anger, sadness. And now we get to a good one, to one that everyone likes. Hey, let's talk about gladness. I'm happy about that. Now, if uh, in any part of this message, or if this brings up questions or thoughts you've had about previous things related to this series on emotions, go to that website, redeemermcr.com ask, it's uh, anonymous, so I don't know where it comes from. It'll go into an email, and we'll talk about it after the sermon. Uh, now, a few weeks ago, I asked some of the kids in Redeemer to draw what made them glad, and so they sent in loads of different kinds of drawings. This is Cameron's. He's by the beach. He has a massive ice cream cone. Look how that, the ice cream cone is bigger than he is. That would make me glad, too. Uh, he's got a fan, by the way. This is a fan that he has, so he's not only by the beach, but he's cool. He's got the water. That would make me very glad. Uh, we have uh, this is Max and Isaac who I guess made like had like a family activity of things that made them glad and they got to scribble on on the sheet as well Uh, we have Colin when he made something that made him glad he wanted to make a monster truck that's pretty big wheels that's like the paper can't even contain the size of the wheels there it's good and this is April's drawing, and when Liz sent it to me, she said uh, April was jumping up and down. And she was blurry. She couldn't really even like, show her drawing. As you see her kind of blurredness there, she's a, she is being glad as she's showing what gladness is. I mean, it's great seeing these, right? This is kind of stuff that you want your kids to, to get. It's like gladness that's untouched by the difficulties of this world. And that's how it should be for a child. But how can we capture some of this gladness in our lives, we who know the difficulties of life, as adults do. Now, interest, interestingly, the Bible talks about gladness and suffering together. Sometimes we think those are two different poles, but the Bible often bring them, brings them together. So try as we might to run away from any kind of pain, to know real gladness is to know suffering. So we all suffer, but how can we see gladness through it? So let's first talk about maybe our problem of not experiencing gladness in all its fullness. I don't think, I think probably very few of us would say, I'm experiencing gladness in, in all its fullness in all areas of my life. So let's talk first about our issue with gladness. And this is a bit of the context of Jeremiah 31. So we haven't spent a lot of time in Jeremiah 31, right? We're just jumping into this. So we need to talk about the context here. Uh, the context here for Israel, who Jeremiah is speaking to. God is speaking to Israel through Jeremiah, their world is crumbling before them. Internally, they're far away from God. So they're not with God. They haven't cultivated deep habits of worshiping God. They've given in to the same kind of things that we give into, which is comfort and success, the illusion that we're in control of our lives, same kind of stuff that we're kind of given to, the same kind of stuff that what they gave into. But externally, they also had another problem, so it's an internal problem, Externally, they had a problem. There's going to be another stronger nation was going to come in and take them over. It, they were, And they're going to be refugees, going into a place that was not their home anymore. Their whole way of life is going to change, and they don't have any control over it. It's going to make very basic things be very difficult. Now, we aren't about to be taken over by a stronger nation, but it does not take a very clever preacher to see the similarities there between living through a pandemic and the context of Jeremiah 31. And also, it doesn't take a very clever preacher to be like, actually, we have the same kind of internal issues that Israel did. Like, we want comfort. We want, you know, the kind of middle-class ideals of success. So let's also look what's going on in these, uh, in these verses here. In verse 10, uh, God says, I Hear the word of the Lord, your nations, proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them. So Israel is scattered, and, or, or will be scattered. They were taken from their homeland, brought back to a different place that's not their own, doesn't speak their language, they're exiles, they're refugees. Things they are sure of, they are not sure of anymore. Certainties are not that certain anymore. The normal, busy aspects of life that could take up a day, and just you can just kind of keep doing those, those are all disrupted. And that's the same for us. And we haven't went anywhere because nobody does that anymore. <laughs> Maybe in the future we will. But we are more isolated. We are more disconnected. We are more scattered than we were a year ago. And this scattering, though, isn't a random thing. is isn't something that we just have kind of fallen into. For Israel, it's purposeful. God is the one who's been behind it. God is behind it and He's in control. Now, what's the point of, of being scattered? Well, verse 11 says, gives us the reason. It says, For the Lord... So what's he, why, is, why did He do this? Why is He scattering them only to gather them? For the Lord will deliver Jacob. For the Lord to deliver. For God to show His glory. For God to show His love. For the Lord to redeem them. See, they thought they all had it made. They were all happy to kind of follow their own way, do their own thing. But that's really weak. And all it takes is one pandemic to show how weak that is. All that falls apart. We, like God's people in the Old Testament, we need something stronger than ourselves to rescue us and to keep on rescuing us. So that's verse 10, verses verse 11. Let's look at verse 13. Verse 13 tells us, that people are mourning. They are they are having a mourning that God is going to turn into something else. So uh, they, if they have mourning and they have sorrow, God has plans for it. But what's He going to... He has plans for it, but what's their starting point? It is sorrow. It is sadness. Do we have things worth mourning over? Surely. That doesn't take very long for you to think about that. To be sorrow over? Of course we do. Of course we do. The mourning and the sorrow in this passage is specific, though... Uh, It's specifically mourning and sorrow over going their own way. So it's more than just like a sadness of circumstances. It's a sadness over kind of how dark we realize our own hearts are. Going our own way always leads to mourning and sorrow. And it may not come immediately, but it always will end there. It will always end in sorrow. And here's how that worked for the people Jeremiah is speaking to here. Over and over, for many generations... God was warning his people, come back to me, you're missing out, there are going to be consequences if you go on that path by yourself, there's going to be bad consequences, you're not going to like it. And Israel over and over and over was like, "Yeah, thanks for that suggestion, but I think we're going to do our own thing. So when they were in trouble, they made pacts with other nations, like, like peace treaties with, with other nations. Now in itself, that's, that's fine, that seems to be totally fine and okay. But why that was not good for Israel is because they never actually talked to the Lord about it. And all along, the Lord said he will deliver Israel and will uh, kind of be like a father over them so they don't need to go to these other nations to get these peace treaties. But they didn't listen. They went to the other nations before going to God. Now, they were religious. They kept their services going. They kept their worship going. But their hearts were very far away. Very hard hearts and very religious people. So when they needed help, they didn't go to God. They went to everywhere but to him. And the pacts that they made, these peace treaties... They ended up getting trapped by them. There's a reason why God said don't do those things. Because what gave them peace maybe initially is what gave them these massive burdens and crushed them eventually. Looking to get out of being slaves to their circumstances, what they did is they actually solidified their slavery by going to everywhere but God. Then, when they're in that pit that they dug for themselves, they explain the difficulties away. They said, look, this is not going to last very long. It'll just be you know a couple of years. It's not really that bad. Everything's going to be back to normal as we've been hearing from everything. Just wait till everything's back to normal. Normal was not coming for them. Normal is not coming for us. There's not a a back to anything. We're going forward to something else. It's going to be new. It's going to be different. So how does this history of God's people connect with our lives today? Of course, we've been talking about we do the same kind of thing. We may not be in the exact same circumstances, but spiritually speaking, we're the same human beings. We have the same issues. And when a difficult emotion comes up, what do we do? We go to anywhere but God, and we explain the difficulty, we push it away. Surely there's a spot in my heart left where I can kind of push that into some kind of crevice where it will never be seen again. When we're living in anger and sadness and loneliness and envy, whatever the difficult emotion might be, what are we prone to do? We don't, maybe often, we aren't prone to talk to God about it first. Uh, We don't talk to God's people about it. We aren't vulnerable with it because it might show that we're weak and therefore, you know, bad or something like that. And then we explain that difficulty away to ourselves. Like we don't engage with it deeply because it hurts. We don't I mean, no one wants to hurt. I get that. And we wonder though why we feel lonely. We're not really bringing our true selves to each other, let alone to God. Now that is just not an acceptable way to live. That's how a lot of people live. That's how a lot of people would define kind of normal life. That's like the status quo. But gladness is a result of our willingness to feel full stop. Not of our willingness to feel good things, but our willingness to feel all things. You can't push down one emotion and expect to be able to feel completely another. We are whole beings. And as we've talked about already, because our hearts aren't compartmentalized, cutting off one type of feeling leads to cutting off all sorts of other kinds of feelings. So then we end up a much more kind of shallow, shriveled humans. And I wonder... Are you experiencing gladness in all its fullness? Surely all of us can grow in this. Instead of seeking out easy answers, instead of being left to life on our own terms, God really does want us to experience gladness in all its fullness. That's what God is all about, is us experiencing gladness in all its fullness. And And if we look to this passage today, we see God talking about the gift of gladness to people who have flat out rebelled against him. He's not talking to the people who are good or who show up and do the thing, the godly things. He's talking to people who are far from him. If God's going to give his kindness or gladness to them, surely, like we have a little bit of hope that God's going to give his gladness to us. Surely God's going to give his gladness to anyone who seeks him in any emotion. And if there's grace for the most headstrong, stubborn, and proud, then there's grace for everybody. See, God does not care as much as you do about your background. He doesn't care about that he doesn't care about your money he doesn't care about your class he doesn't care about your sexual identity he doesn't care about your political causes your gender identity your own philosophies of life your skin color your country of origin your values he doesn't really care about any of that he transforms all of that but he doesn't care about any of that as far as coming to him he calls people from every background out of the brokenness that we carry in all the areas of our life into something better into something more and so whatever you've done whatever you've cared about whatever you haven't done, whatever you don't care about, there is the ability to not just periodically experience gladness, but to live in it consistently. See, the Bible never promises that we won't suffer. It says the opposite. You become a believer, you're going to suffer more. That's what Jesus says. That's that's one of the great Bible promises. You don't see that kind of like, you know, cross-stitch on a pillow, but it's the reality of what it is. Jesus and the apostles say that over and over and over again, that pain, that suffering, it's all part of the Christian life. And Christianity is rooted in reality. It's not some kind of pie in the sky, let's all hope for better things to happen to us eventually one day. Suffering is part of the walk. But as depressing as it might sound at first, it's actually the seed of the gospel. Because our part of suffering is part of the good news. because it is through our pain that we experience gladness. It's just how ironic kind of weird things, through our pain that we experience gladness. Experiencing joy and encountering glory are intertwined with our pain and suffering in this world. That's what Romans eight seventeen is all about. It says, Now if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co heirs of Christ, and here's the section here is bolded. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. So sharing in sufferings, in order that's like a purpose there, that we might also share in his glory. These two are connected. We can't say, I want all the glory without the suffering, as much as we all want that, right? It's sharing in the sufferings leads to sharing in the glory. There's, and that also means that suffering has a purpose, has a trajectory. That's a reason for it. We share in sufferings in order that, so that we, the purpose is that we might share in his glory. So let's talk about a little bit what gladness looks like, and what we, especially what we learn in Jeremiah 31 here. There's four things here we're going to look at. The first is we get to be scattered. Uh, we come from being scattered to being gathered. God tells those who are scattered, he's going to gather them. That he's going to watch over them. He'll protect them and care for them. That's what he says kind of in the, um, in the second part of verse 10. Now, all of us, when we're born, we've all been handed a script. Say, this is how to live in the world. The secular script of, of what it means to live in this world. And this secular script that we've all been force-fed teaches us that Individual freedom is to be prized above all else, regardless of anything. Individual freedom is where it's at. So, if we do get involved with others, we do so, but a bit more, a bit reserved. We're not completely all in because that would hinder our freedom. There's some level of detachment. So, we might be together, like physically or even like hybrid physical and online, but not completely really together. We only go so far. That means even when we're involved in community, we aren't really reaping its benefits and enjoying the gladness of being together. Together, it's very easy. I should to be together apart. individuals kind of doing the thing because they're all on the same page. But to be together, together is something else. And that's what it means. That's what God does. He gets us from those scattered individualistic mindsets and into more of a gathered family kind of mindset. And also, what, um, what God does is He brings us from scarcity. To abundance. Verse fourteen says, "I will satisfy the priest with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty." Declares the Lord. I think any verse has bounty, and it's going to be great. Um, need to get some kind of good pirate accent going on there. Um, well, what God's God is saying God's people are going to be satisfied. Do we even know what it means to be satisfied in this world? We're always chasing after something more. And in God's abundance, He says, "My people will be filled." with my bounty, all, with my treasures, with all the goodness that I have to give. Actually, maybe undoing a bit of that pirate speak is another word to translate that word bounty is goodness. The secular script that we've all been given says we must find for ourselves what satisfies us, and that can be careers, that can be families, that can be partners, that can be friends, whatever the thing is, passions, in themselves, all those things, as good as they might be, they do not have what it takes for us to be completely satisfied. And when we seek them and aren't satisfied, we think, well, maybe there's a problem with my marriage, or maybe there's a problem with my career, because I'm not getting out of it this like, kind of complete life fulfillment that I thought I would get. I either need a different one, or I need to pour more of myself into it, because, oh, maybe I'm the problem, maybe I'm not doing enough. But all these are horizontal problems to a vertical problem, or horizontal solutions to a vertical problem. If we're not completely filled by God, that vertical kind of aspect... All the other parts of life are just going to feel like you know, they're just not really coming through because we're going to seek to be filled by those things that can't fill us in the way that we need to. God tells us we're worth more. We're made for more. And while a family or career or whatever can satisfy aspects of our lives, and they ought to and they should, those are good things, it will never be the abundance from God that we really long for. So God also takes us from sorrow to comfort and joy. God says he will give comfort and joy to those who have sorrow. One translation says, uh, translates uh, this verse uh, in this way, I will give them gladness for sorrow, like an exchange. I'm going to take their sorrow. I'm going to give them gladness. Again, looking at that secular script, we aren't really given a path for sorrow. What does suffering look like in a consumerist mindset? There's no place for suffering, so we don't talk about it. And when we do, we talk about it really badly. We don't really know what to do with it. It doesn't get us anything in itself. And because of that, we have this, this lack in our lives. We aren't that great about talking about suffering, let alone seeing it's usefulness, it's true usefulness in our lives. And so we, we stay away from it. If there's a, a hint of suffering possibly coming, we go the other way. And therefore, we don't ever really risk either. But God uses sorrow as a seedbed for comfort and joy. That is that exchange. I will exchange their sorrow for gladness. He exchanges it. He grows it as a seedbed. Uh, the fourth thing here that we see in these five verses is we go from mourning to gladness. So we get from scattered to gathered, from scarcity to abundance, from sorrow to comfort and joy, and lastly from mourning to gladness. See, the secular script tells us that if we're feeling bad, we can have the power to turn that frown upside down. You just gotta try harder, do better. You know what's wrong? You have all these blessings in your life. Shouldn't you just be happy about that? It could be so much worse. All the kind of cliches we say to avoid actually dealing with sorrow. Through managing, through therapies, through activities we do, we all have the power to make ourselves better. Those things are all great. They're all good. But they're not really going to give us a solution that we need. Now, even though that might fall under the label of empowerment, of turning that frown upside down kind of thing that we do, it might sound empowering. It's actually an impossible burden for us humans to bear because we can't truly do that in our lives. I mean, think of when you felt sad, like really sad, overcome with sadness in your life where the word mourning would, would apply. Do you have the power to make things better? Often, that's the difficulty. We don't have the power to make things better, and that's what's so hard about it. And the only kind of message we're going to get out there, outside of the church, is you, can, you have the power to make things better within yourself. But we, that's not always true. It's a, it's a lie. The mourning is the consequence here in this, in this section here. Remember, the mourning is the consequence of their own internal brokenness, And the external conflicts that are about to come rampaging into their lives. Like, we don't have the power to do anything about any of those things. Who has the power to do anything about the pandemic? We don't. Who has the power to do anything about things that we're just not in control of? Like, we just don't have it. So what happens when our sorrow comes from those kind of places? Our modern age, where we can be all right without a God, thanks very much, is plagued with mental health issues. This should not surprise us. It should make total sense why that's correlated. We buckle under the pressure of having to be our own saviors. And whether you follow Jesus or not, all of us are susceptible to this kind of sadness. All of us are susceptible to this kind of depression in our lives. But God says he will turn mourning into gladness. We will all experience mourning. Only those who follow God in the way that God says will experience that mourning as a transformation process to gladness. Now uh, there's a word here that when I was studying it, I was like, "Yes, nerd level max." This is the kind of thing that I love, kind of discovering and finding out about the Bible. Um, it's the word translated "turn" here, where God says, "I'm going to turn um, their mourning to gladness," uh, in the, kind of the middle of verse 13. It says, "I will turn their mourning into gladness," in, in, in the NIV. That word "turn" um, has the meaning of overthrowing something, like an, like a regime change, and also has the uh, the context of a 180 degree turn. So you're going one way and you're going the opposite way. One way is sorrow, this way is gladness. This is how God cares for us. He sees us under the evil regime that only sorrow brings and He overturns it. He overthrows it completely. The whole evil regime is done. It's overturned. It has no more power anymore. All of us, before meeting God, that's where we are. Under that evil regime of sadness, of mourning, of unable to do anything about it. And what he does is overthrow that system completely. It's like a, a coup, but in like a positive sense, not a kind of evil, rebellious, horrible coup. It is a rebellious coup to the status quo, but a wonderful one, one that gives us all the things that the people want. All those who were once under that evil regime now experience a complete about-face in their lives. They're going one way, and now they're going some way completely different. Living into gladness, instead of living into more sorrow by itself without any other hope. Now surely... This is better than working out life on our own. Surely this is, is worth sacrificing just a tiny bit of our own individual freedom for. This is a glorious life. Romans eight seventeen again, that we looked at earlier. Now for children, we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now here's the thing also, we've just been looking at five verses there's a whole lot more to God's gladness than five verses that come from Jeremiah. There's an insane amount. In fact, you could probably say this book is, is an encyclopedia of all God's goodness that He wants us to have if we share in His life. But we can't get to all that now because um, we're not going to be here for hours upon hours. You're lucky, yes. Uh, I mean, if you're at home, you can at least you know, mute me or turn me off. You're stuck here, everyone's going to see you walk out. The shame. So we're only looking at a few of those verses today, uh, but this really is a massive book all about how God loves us and how God wants to transform us, transform us and move us from sorrow to gladness. So if gladness is that good, which it is, I think this is actually most of uh, people's, my own maybe, difficulty with Christianity, that sounds too good to be true. Like, that sounds awfully good. Is that real? It is real. So if if that is real, which we believe as Christians, this is real, how can we live in that? What in the world does that look like? How can we actually live in gladness? How can sharing in suffering lead to sharing in glory? How in the world does that work? Because I I see those things as very far apart. How are they connected? Well, it's all about God overthrowing that evil regime of sin and death. See, God's overthrow allows you and empowers you to be able to overthrow when you read the Bible, you find over and over again that God just loves to flip things upside down. His kingdom is, is upside down. His when He came to Earth, what kind of ruler was He? Did He come in like in glory and strength and like bright lights everywhere? Like no, it was upside down. No one really expected it, even though He always kind of said He was coming that way. God's people in the Old Testament were weak and small, and yet He used them to show His infinite glory. The the church in the New Testament, they're weak, they're small, they're like they're they're getting persecuted by the most powerful force on earth through Rome. And yet God uses these small groups of people who really didn't get to begin with to turn the whole world upside down. See, God loves the irony of the weak overcoming the strong. Like That David and Goliath story is what plays out over and over and over again. Because a powerful person can use power to overcome power, but a truly, absolutely powerful person can use the weak to overcome the strong. And that's what God loves to do because it shows how strong he is. Now, the way we can live in gladness is through three ironies. So it's that irony of upside-downness that we're going to get into. Three ironies. The cross, the resurrection, and pain. So the first irony of the cross is that evil intention is transformed into divine salvation. The death of God. That's how God uses His power to overturn the world. That doesn't make any sense. And yet that's exactly how God does because he loves to show how strong he is and using what is weak to overcome the strong. God overruled the wicked intention of those who wanted Jesus dead. There's a combination of religious leaders and political leaders working together uh, who want Jesus to die. And he used their very act to do the thing that they did not want to do at all to bring salvation to the world. Only God can do this. How ironic is all that? God can use even the worst intentions of the worst people for Him to be glorified in the end, for Him to be seen as more loving in the end. This shows how strong God is and also how all people are invited to enjoy Him. Without the cross, the evil regime of sin and death, our brokenness, the brokenness of other people, it would all be in charge. That evil regime would be in charge if it was not for the cross. We would all be powerless, but the cross is is a bloody overthrow of the evil regime of sin and death. That's a good thing when it comes to gladness. It's a really good thing when it comes to gladness. If the God behind that kind of regime change is also the God behind my gladness, that's the same God. And He's still working in the same way. If He's my grounding, that means gladness can come in any circumstance. Because whatever circumstance we go through, it is not as deep and dark and dire as the cross itself. So if God can use the cross to, 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 to be the method of divine salvation, God can use all my horrible circumstances to show his gladness through. There's the irony of the cross. The second irony is that resurrection comes through crucifixion. Resurrection comes through crucifixion. Death comes before new life. This irony is heightened when we see that the Bible understands the cross and the resurrection to be the culmination of like a great cosmic battle the battle has been raging since adam and eve and from the very beginning of the book of the, uh, the very beginning of the bible when they chose to not be satisfied in god then loneliness enters the world curses enter the world but even in the curses god gives adam and eve like a shred a little tiny snippet of hope he says they will not be turned over to the powers of evil but the conflict will go on and on and on until one day god himself will make right all the things that we broke And the irony of new life coming through death is how God chose to go about it. Why did he do that? I don't know, but that's how he did it. And think of also how that connects to Romans 17. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Sharing in Christ's sufferings is the path to share in his glory. That's where gladness is to be found. In fact, writers in the New Testament say that Christ's sufferings are not yet complete because there's more sufferings that we, as the church, being a part of Christ's body, have yet to experience. I kind of know what that means. It's really difficult to know. And again, if you have questions, like everyone has questions about this, and you want to talk about them after, this, after the sermon, which we will, you can go to redeemermcr.com ask, um, and you can unanimously put those in. Or if you're like, this doesn't make any sense, and I think you're completely wrong for these reasons, send those in as well. So we have the cross, we have the resurrection. We also, lastly, we have this third irony of living in gladness. God overturns pain by experiencing it himself. He overturns pain by experiencing it. He doesn't just reverse it. He doesn't act as if it never happened. He doesn't kind of say, well, you know, that was really bad in the past. We can, you know, maybe just kind of move forward. Let's just look this way. and Don't look back. He, Jesus, goes through it himself. And because Jesus did that, all of us who are united to him, we get to live in that as well. That means we get to live in that as well. That means suffering can exist and gladness can exist at the same time. So this, isn't, this is not an answer to why does suffering exist. That's a whole other sermon, and I'm happy to talk about that uh, in, 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 in the future or even at the end of this one if you have those kind of questions. It's not an answer, but it is a way through. It's how we go through. All of us experience suffering in this world. Only those who are united to Jesus can also experience gladness from God. Because we get suffering and gladness from God, but if we don't have God, all we get is suffering. In order to live a life of gladness, we aren't required to remove negative emotions. We're not required to remove like, what troubles us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're left to let the reality of pain sink in. And what we do with those emotions is to bring them before Jesus. We bring them to Him. Because to share in His suffering is a prerequisite to sharing in His glory. In order to live in gladness, we embrace the ironies of the cross, the resurrection, and the pain. That's how God overthrew all that is wrong in this world. And we get to be a part of that as well as we join him in that overthrowing process. And in all of this, the best gift we can get, in all of this, the best gift we get is God himself. More than the benefits of the gladness that he brings, we get him himself. That reality is the most foundational truth for all the other aspects of gladness that we've talked about today. Without God giving us himself, none of what we've talked about is true. It's all a lie. But if God gives us himself, then it actually is true. Without God giving us himself, our experience of gladness in this life will be limited. See, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the ironic realities of the cross, the resurrection and pain, are made real in us and through what he's done. This is called the life of faith. That's how Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. He's connected to him inextricably in a way that can never be torn apart. Now the change from being one who doesn't follow Jesus to one who does is night and day and we may not have a night and day kind of experience it might just be, feel like a gradual thing but what happens inside is night and day because once Jesus didn't live in me and now Jesus does live in me and that is an identity change that's a, like an existential change because the Holy Spirit through Jesus is living in me that's how Paul can say I my old self have been crucified because I'm connected to him and by his spirit I stay connected to him now how do I live I live by faith not by paycheck, not by intellect, not by passion, not by friends, not by my family, not my ideas of morality and sexuality, not my partner, not by middle class ideals of success, not by political ideologies, but by faith in Jesus. This is Jesus. He loved me. He gave himself for me. He didn't just do something for me, he gave himself. And by the Holy Spirit, he will always keep on giving himself for me. And the way of Jesus is a protest against the evil regime of the status quo. And that's what we get to live in as the Spirit works in us. One of my favorite artists is uh, Makoto Fujimura. I kind of use him as an illustration whenever I have the excuse to. In the past, he's done... Kind of really massive, kind of abstract paintings, like as big as some of those panels or even like as big as that side of the wall there, like huge, massive ones. But recently he's been working in a form called uh, kintsugi. It's a Japanese word. He's Japanese American himself. Uh, the, The word kintsugi, kin, means gold and tsugi means to mend. So it's taking something that's broken and putting it back together, but using this precious metal of gold to do so. You take something beautiful that has been broken and you mend it using gold, and it becomes even more beautiful than before, or at least even like, transformative. It's different than before. This is a different bowl than it was before because there's gold woven throughout. Now, this is different than just gluing parts together because then when you do that, you try and hide the glue. You don't want people to see the glue. This is just a different kind of thing. It's putting the brokenness on display, or maybe not even the brokenness, but the, the glorious healing of the brokenness on display using gold. It's not hidden. You wouldn't hide gold. It's out in the open because it's gold. You want people to see it. Now, this is a picture of what gladness can be like. With all the brokenness in our lives, some that we bring, some other times it's been brought against us, now mended together by the process of the cross and the resurrection and the pain. And Jesus' blood becomes the focal point. We don't hide it. We don't put it away. We put it on display, the focal point, just as gold would be in all its glory as we get put back together. Now that word kintsugi, made of those two kind of um, those phrases, uh, tsugi means to mend, but it can also mean to link generations together. So things that have not been linked together for generations now through this process can be mended, can be broken together. Under the power of God, things that were never linked together or were never healed, even for maybe generations, now can be because of what God's done, because of him bringing himself to us. And we get to experience this kind of wholeness it's not broken anymore. This is a wholeness. It can't be found anywhere else. It's a very different kind of thing. When we experience this kind of wholeness, we know what it's like to live in gladness. This is a gladness that transcends feeling happy or feeling sad. This is a gladness that, that is possible regardless of what we might be feeling on the top. I wonder if even broken for so long, you'd think that maybe that's just the way life is supposed to be. But it's not. It's meant to be mended together. Now maybe our lives started with these kind of optimistic ideas of what life can be like. And then parts of us kind of got torn along the way. And now we're a bit more jaded, a bit more cynical, we're a bit more broken. But Jesus takes these pieces together and makes us whole. And now that we are sons and daughters of a good father, we can experience that happiness, that gladness that we are starving for and craving for. And we get to be super proud of things and show them and, and uh, live life out in the open instead of hidden away. In Jeremiah 31, towards the end of the chapter, uh, we read this in verse 33. Uh, this is God speaking to his people. said, this is the covenant. This is the promise I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, after he gathers them together, declares the Lord. He says this, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is not happening for the Israelites then. This is a forward time that Israelites are looking forward to, that God's people are looking forward to. See, God even then had promised to put his people back together. The day that Jeremiah is talking about is today. That's what all the prophets in the Old Testament were looking forward to. This day, even right now in this moment to experience what we just talked about. It's different today than it was then. This is our time that we get to live in. The way that people get new hearts, the way we get put back together, the way that gladness can come through in our pain is the work of Jesus. All the prophets and the priests and God's people in the Old Testament, they were all looking forward to our time today, what we get to experience now on a daily basis. This is the height of gladness. So let's embrace the cross, embrace the resurrection, and embrace God who has given us himself. And through that, we get to live in gladness, regardless of whatever might be going on circumstantially, regardless of whatever kind of brokenness we have in our own hearts, through God and what he's done, through Him giving himself, his Holy Spirit residing in us, we get to live in a gladness that's beyond that, that's deeper than that, that goes to, to our core and really forms who we are.